0: Today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture from Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, this is a passage of Scripture that I want my children to know as well as they know John 3.16. I want us here in this church to know this passage of of Scripture as well as we know John 3.16. It's a passage that I like to talk about, so you've possibly heard me talk about it before if you're in my small group or if I've had an opportunity to counsel you or talk with you. Um, I love to talk about this passage. And uh, if, if you think of John 3.16 as being a kind of a, s- a simple way to explain how to become a Christian, then this passage in, in Ephesians chapter 3 explains in fairly simple terms how we are to live as Christians. It gets right to the root of it. And so I'm excited to speak about it today. Now as I I preach today, I want you to keep one question in the front of your minds. The question is this, is God pleased with you? Is God pleased with you or is he angry with you? And it doesn't matter, some of us here are Christians and so maybe some of you here are, are guests and, you've, and you're not a Christian. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the question is Is before you, is God pleased with you? Now I grew up, I uh, spent much of my childhood in what is now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's in the middle of Africa and um, it's a land that's, that suffers under terrible spiritual oppression. If you ever go to a museum here in the United States and you see an exhibit of African tribal masks, you will likely have seen a few masks from the Congo. These masks are used in religious worship and they're often depictions of demons who the Congolese alternately worship and appease. I remember these vividly because they're some of the most frightening things you can imagine. And I, you know, I saw them as a child, so they're, they're stuck in my mind. And if you look at these masks for any length of time, it's very clear that these demons are very, very angry. It's, if you, just by looking at the masks, it appears that the gods themselves want to devour the people who, they, who serve them. And it's clear from the habits and the culture of the Congolese that they serve gods that are very angry. Is this how you see God? Is this the God that you serve? Now, on the other side of the world, here in the United States, uh, there's a preacher who, a few years ago, released a video called, The Gods Aren't Angry. Now, in the video, this preacher takes aim at what we would call in fancy theological terms, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And he tries to refute it. It's a, it's a doctrine that we believe in, uh, as a Christian church. And he tries to attack it. Now, it sounds complicated, but it's, it's actually fairly simple. It's, it's simply, it means simply this. God is good and fair, and he hates evil. Because he's fair, he punishes evil. We, when we're born are evil, all of us. So we deserve to be punished. This is, this is what Scripture teaches us. Jesus, who was not evil, but was perfectly good, was crucified in the, on the cross in my place. He received my punishment. Jesus took my blame, and I took his perfection. So penal substitutionary atonement, if you ever hear it again, means that Jesus was punished and died in my place. Simple enough. To me, that sounds like good news. Uh, I deserved death, but instead I got off free. Uh, But the preacher in this video didn't like that at all. Uh, He didn't like the idea of God being angry, and so he came up with another theory of what happened on the cross. He denied that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, taking the punishment in our place, and instead, Jesus' death on the cross was simply meant to reveal the ugliness and brutality of a system built on the need to appease God. His point was that God didn't need to be appeased. His point, this preacher is trying to tell us that Jesus' death was simply supposed to mark the end of all that mess. And that God wasn't really angry and nobody really needed to be punished in that way. Instead, so says this preacher... Jesus modeled nonviolence in his death as in his life, and in so doing, he is an example for us to follow. He, Instead of being a sacrifice to take my place, Jesus is primarily the perfect example for us to follow. Now, what's the result of this teaching? The practical result of this kind of a teaching is, uh, is, a, is a people who have no compunction of conscience. What does that mean? Well, it means that it, it creates in us, it creates a people who, despite our evil thoughts and our evil intentions and our evil, evil actions, the evil things that we actually do, despite all those things, there's no need for any remorse or any sorrow. God is not angry about my sin, or even if he is slightly annoyed by it, he is not bothered enough to demand any kind of punishment. The practical result of this is a people who have very high view of themselves. They think very highly of themselves, and they think it the worst possible sin to ever feel guilty for anything that they've ever done. That's the worst thing you could do, to feel guilty, right? And this describes Americans pretty well. We think we're pretty awesome, no matter what you can say about us, and uh, and we think it's, uh, it, it's the worst type of sin to even ever question how awesome we are. So, on the one hand, the Congolese are taught to live in abject, total fear of demons and gods. And it's very clear. That's the way that they live. They live in fear. On the other hand, Americans are taught that the worst thing that they could possibly do is to ever feel guilty. Uh, or, or to ever fear God. The, the Congolese can, can know that they can basically assume that, uh, that, that the gods are never pleased with them, and we Americans must never even ask the question. It's, a, it's wrong to even ask the question. Now, the passage we're going to look at today responds to both errors. It is, in fact, possible to have a tender conscience toward our sin and yet to remain strong in the lord and in faith. There is a proper place for guilt and remorse and god has given us his word, in his word the proper way to address that guilt so that we can know the peace of god. Let's let's now read the passage together. This is Ephesians chapter 3 beginning with verse 14. For this reason i bow my knees before the father and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, this passage is so weighty and so packed with goodness that it's almost unimaginable that we can even scratch the surface of it. But we pray, Father, that you would strengthen me to preach and you'd give us ears to hear and ability to understand. Father, please help us now as we look into your glorious truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Ephesians begins with some amazing truths. If you're familiar at all with this, this book, you'll know that the chapter chapter 1 speaks of the grace of God that He lavished on us in Jesus Christ. It teaches us that God set His love on us before the foundations of the world, before the worlds were even created. Jesus is now seated at the at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and is above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His name is above every other name. Chapter 2 describes our new life in Christ. Uh, it's, we're speaking to Christians, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it be, but it begins with these words. Chapter 2, that is. And you were, were dead in your trespasses and sins. It describes us as having been, previously, children of wrath by nature. But it goes on to say that even though we were dead in our sins, God, by his kind mercy and grace, made us alive together with Christ. God took a dead, rotting corpse and made a new man out of it. And in the second half of chapter 2, Paul goes on to explain how this God, who has rescued us from our sin, "...has now made one family out of all those who believe in him, both Jews and non-Jews. He has cut down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, and those who are far off, those of us here who are Gentiles were, are considered far off from God, those who were far off are now brought near to God by Christ's blood. The dividing line has been broken, and we all now have access in one spirit to the Father." We're all family now. It's with these glorious truths as the, as the backdrop uh, that Paul begins chapter 3 with the words, For this reason, I. Now, for this reason refers to everything in chapters 1 and 2 that has already been written. Uh, but chapter 3 is a little bit difficult to follow because he, he starts chapter 3 and then immediately he launches into one of his typical asides. This is normal for Paul. He, he has a, a trail, a rabbit trail, you might call it, and he, but he needs to go down it, so he, he takes a detour. And so he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he takes a step back and, and makes sure that they understand what it means for him to be doing all these things for the sake of the Gentiles. Why is he ministering to the Gentiles? Why is he in chains on their behalf? He's a prisoner. Why, why is that? How did he unravel all of these mysteries in the first place? Uh, these glorious truths in chapters 1 and 2. Verses 2 through 13 of chapter 3 are an aside to deal with these questions. He brings his readers up to speed. But after the aside in verses 2 through 13, Paul uh, uh, picks up again with what he was about to begin saying in verse 1. With the very same words in verse fourteen, he says again, "For this reason." It's like he just starts over. He says, "I'm coming again," right? He's coming again. <clears throat> but the key, th- the reason I, I, I want you to understand this is because everything that he says in verse fourteen and on is based on those the truths in, in chapters one and two. All right. <clears throat> now, uh, so let's read it. Chapter, uh, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. That's how he begins. And, and the first thing to realize is that, the, that Paul's first reaction to the glorious truths in chapters 1 and 2 is to pray. This is his first reaction. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Today's entire passage indeed is a prayer to God, and that's a very important point. Paul hasn't gotten yet to the practical instructions that he's going to give to the Ephesians. That's going to come later in chapters 4 through 6. Uh, he, he's going to talk about some practical applications of these glorious truths. But right now, he's speaking directly to God. And he's, he's showing the Ephesians how to pray and how he's praying for them. Uh, but the point is, he's talking to God. He's praying on their behalf. And so the thing that we need to learn from this is that he's instructing them that what comes next can never be conjured up by the will of of man. The practical instructions that come in the next few chapters are things that can be mimicked by a hypocrite, right? Um, They are uh, the type of thing that, that... can be seen on the outside. And so a hypocrite can steady them and, and do them, try to copy them, without uh, dealing with the content of the prayer. And so that's why it's, it's critically important for us not to, not to miss the fact that he, he first, he prays. And, and requests, uh, makes his request known to God. The point is that the things that Paul asks for here exist in the inner man and they depend upon, entirely upon God's power working within us. So it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This is also, this verse, verse 15, is also packed with meaning and I only have time to just mention briefly a little bit of it. Uh, It teaches us, for instance, about the federal headship of God the Father. We are now in Christ, and so we are sons of God. All of us, men and women, we're sons of God. And what that means is, as He is our Father, we take His name. This is the reason why, in our culture, if a man and woman get married, and they have children, the children take the the last name of the Father. This is a custom that we learned here in Scripture. It teaches us... That uh, as God is our Father, we are now part of His family, and we know this because we have His name. We take on His name. And indeed, the fact that we have His name is is the very basis, the fact that we are are now sons of God is the very basis on which Paul is able to say the things that come next. the actual request that Paul makes in this prayer begins in verse 16. He says, uh, he prays that he, speaking of God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, before I go on with the contents of this prayer, um, I must take a mo- this opportunity to state the obvious. You... Have an inner man. We know in theory that we have an inner man, uh, but many Christians spend their lives acting as if it didn't exist. The scriptures speak alternately uh, of your soul or your heart, or as stated here, the inner man. It's the thing inside of you uh, that is the wellspring of your life. You have a soul and it needs to be strengthened. In Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, but I've been going through it with the high school group recently. Um, and the reason I've, I'm going through that group is because a lot of the high schoolers that we have have grown up in the church. And so they, they know very well, they could very easily just put on a show for us, right? They, they know what a Christian looks like, and so they can mimic it. This is a temptation for all of us, and, uh, but what Jesus says is that a hypocrite is, is, is someone who is like a, a whitewashed tomb. He looks good on the outside, but inside he's filled with dead men's bones. He's dry and dead. There's no life within him. A hypocrite is one whose heart is shriveled and sick, but who is able to to put on a facade, a show of health and vigor. Now, as good Americans, we spend countless hours and hordes of cash on our bodies. Some of us eat too much, and some of us make a principle of starving ourselves, right? Some of us are disciplined, and we beat our bodies into shape uh, on a regular basis. Some of us are undisciplined, and so... Uh, we beat our bodies occasionally and feel guilty the rest of the time, right? Either way, we, <laughs> we, we are uh, in love with our bodies and we, and we give ourselves uh, to careful attention to our bodies. We pay careful attention to the food that we eat and the food that we feed our family. We obsess over uh, uh, recipes, we make sure that the nutritional content is good and that we're very careful about its spices and flavors. We're very careful to spend lots of time in front of the mirror to, to make ourselves look good, as good as possible. And on and on and on. No one, I don't think, will argue with me that Americans are obsessed with their bodies. And yet we pay very little attention to our souls. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We're very careful to care for our body, and yet Scripture teaches that the life flows from our heart. It's your heart, even more than your body, that needs nourishing. It's your sick or your weak or your flabby heart that needs your attention, not your sick or your weak or your flabby body, right? And God has given us various ways, various means by which to nourish our souls. Uh, we have His Word, uh, the Word of God, to read and upon which we can may meditate. We have prayer. We have fellowship with the saints. We have the preaching of God's Word. We have the sacraments. It is by these means. Uh, that God answers Paul's prayer here in Ephesians and strengthens our inner man. But we must not miss the point. Uh, We must not miss the fact that it's our inner man that Paul is concerned for here. He's praying and asking for God to strengthen our inner man. Now, Paul has already written in chapters 2 about how we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and how God rescued us. By nature, we were evil and born in sin, we were children of wrath. That is to say, we were the target of God's wrath, of God's anger. He was angry with us, but God, through Christ, has showered His love upon us, and made us alive. The point here is that um, it's. The point here is that Paul is praying. For Christians, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and yet he still prays that God would strengthen their inner man. Why would he do that if, if, God, if Christ has already done the work? Well, the point, the, the reason he would do that <clears throat> is because it's not as if God's work or God's power was somehow done or not needed after we had been made alive in Christ. No, it, it's not as if. Now that Christ has made us alive, we must now get to work, right? God has done his part, and now I need to do my part. That's not it at all. Paul prays for God to strengthen us because we need it. We would be weak and helpless without God strengthening us with his power in our inner man. The point here is that we don't strengthen ourselves, right? We are weak, we are full of sin we are stupid, it is God in Christ who comes to bless us. He is the one who fills us up. This is the, the, now, it's no bother to me to labor over this point, because it's the crucial difference between what scripture teaches us about repentance and faith, and the grace, grace mantra that, that is heard all all around our country, that is actually graceless. It's the difference between what Scripture teaches us about repentance and faith and peace with God uh, that's different than what this preacher who who had this video, The Gods Aren't Angry, um, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, It's the difference between what he's saying and what Scripture teaches us. To preach grace without repentance is to teach that repentance is unnecessary. It's Uh, To preach that God is not angry with sin and evil teaches us that there is no need for repentance. Jeremiah uh, 2.13 teaches that Israel was guilty of two things. First, for forsaking him the fountain of living waters. And second, for making for themselves broken wells that could hold no water. And this is the very same thing that we do today. On the one hand, uh, we neglect the fountain of living water. And how do we do that? Well, if we, if we fail to preach the need for repentance and faith, then we fail to see the need for the water at all. And so we, we, we fail to, to realize that the only place to get that water is from God. God. And so, we forsake the the, the source of living water, and we instead make for ourselves broken wells that hold no water. We come up with our ways, our own ways, to fill ourselves up. But it's only when we realize that we have something to repent of that Jesus becomes precious, precious to us. Now... We don't strengthen ourselves, okay? And this is the key to understanding why and how it is that you can, at, on the same time, uh, be tender of conscience, and as I'll say in a, explain in a minute, how we can uh, be be have peace and be firm in our found, in, in our uh, in our faith. Um, we need Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith and it's not God's intention for his saints to be constantly tossed to and fro in their consciences. The, the point of the prayer is for us to be rooted and grounded in love. To be rooted in love calls up the image of a tree, right? Uh, it's, its roots go down deep it, uh, it, its roots go down deep into the love of God, and it's where we get our nourishment and our stability. It's our life. Psalm 1-3 tells us that man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a, fir- a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. To be grounded is to have firm foundation, like that of a well-built building. The storms may come and the storms may go, but we'll be firmly planted in the love of Christ. Now, we're getting to the good part. So if, you're, if you've fallen asleep, it's time to wake up. All right? The reason that I love this passage so very much is these next couple of verses that, uh, that gives, gave a twist that knocked my socks off. And these verses are particularly incredible. If any of you are like me and and you can't do anything without your to-do list near at hand, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't pray that we would do anything here. He simply prays that we would know the love of God in verses 18 and 19. And it's very surprising because so far he's prayed for us to be strengthened and he's prayed for us to be rooted. And so you're, you're kind of expecting some great thing, some great work that he's going to call us to. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he prays for us to know the love of God. and he, Now, Paul does get to works that we're to do, that we're called to do in, in, in chapters 4 and beyond. But it's critical that you understand why uh, he doesn't skip there immediately. Uh, if you skip over verses 18 and 19 and head right, right into chapter 4, uh, you will <clears throat> you'll miss the fountain. You'll miss the source uh, of everything. So I want to read this, this passage again, and I want you to pay very close attention to the logic of this prayer. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man why so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to resist temptation no that's not what he says may be able to fight the good fight it's not what he says May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He prays for God's power to strengthen us, that we might, along with all the saints, know the love of God. Now, this is surprising to us because we think we're very smart. Many of us in this congregation, are, you might refer to as knowledge workers. You make your living by using your mind as opposed to your body primarily. So we're in the business of knowing things. It's what we do to know things. But Paul is teaching us here that it takes the very power of God to know the love of God. And that by it, we can, know, we can be filled up with the, all the fullness of God. Now, Stephen told me this morning, he came into my office and told me that the electrical panel in his house had fried, right? Somehow it had overheated or whatever, melted the panel. This passage fries my brain. How is it possible to be filled with the fullness of God? How does that even make sense? Now, the reason I've wanted to to preach about this to this congregation is that many of you have tender consciences, but rather than having peace in god you're racked you're racked and and, and and you have no peace right and and so uh and and so what we're often tempted to do is to fall prey to the false teaching about the the lack of any need for repentance you know so we, we we're racked with these these sense of guilt and of uh, and and so we say I can't deal with this and so I'm just going to forget about repentance, forget about asking God to forgive me for my sins. But the key, and this is there's there's two points that I want you to walk away with today, and this is the first one. This passage is the key to being at the same time tender of conscience, able to uh, see your sin and repent of it. And so it's it's the key to being tender of conscience and strong in the Lord. And how does that work? How are those two things able to be mixed together? Well, it works because those who are tender of conscience know that they are empty. They know that they are weak, and they pray that God would strengthen their inner man. They feel their spiritual poverty, and they pray that God would fill them with the knowledge of His love. But then the whole point of the prayer is that we would be rooted and grounded in love. The whole point of the prayer is that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that we would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Is this is this the the sound of uh, or the what it sounds like to be tossed to and fro? No, it's not. You're no longer to ignore, you don't need to ignore the fact that you are empty of anything good. You can go to the fountainhead and drink living water. Being tender of conscience is precisely what is needed to be filled by Christ. If your conscience is heavy laden, come and drink. Be satisfied in Him. But as a warning, if you're a hypocrite and you're self-satisfied and you're proud and you have no need for Christ then McDonald's will serve you fine, right? You can, you, can do, you can feed your external body and you'll be fine. And what will happen is your, your inner man will shrivel and die, will remain dead. Uh, you won't need to bother with spiritual food and spiritual drink. But if you have a tender conscience, you're invited to come and be filled, to be rooted, be grounded. It's possible to have both a tender conscience And to and to be rooted and grounded in our faith. The second point um, that I want you to walk away with today goes back to the beginning of the sermon, where I said that I wanted uh, that if John 3:16 explained in a simple way how we are to become Christians, this prayer in Ephesians teaches us how we are to live as Christians. The point is that it takes the power of God to know the love of God. And that knowing the love of God is the key to understanding and interpreting everything else in your life. There's nothing in your life that isn't touched by this knowledge. Your inner man is a part of you that this world cannot touch without your permission, in a sense. Your outward body may get tired or hungry or beaten down, but your soul can always return to Christ, the fountainhead. Now, before you jump to conclusions or you think that I'm wrong or you think I'm talking about uh, simply being a Stoic, consider this. How is it that the saints in the world today and in ages past have been able to undergo the most terrible conditions imaginable and yet find the ability to speak about the love and the mercy and peace of God in a way that's clear that they know it, that they depend on it, that they're feeding on it? How is it that, our, that saints in ages past, and even today, can have their dearest loved ones pass away, and, and yet they still have peace? How is it that we can have our homes, or our money, or our jobs taken away? How is it that the earth itself can give way, and yet we can still know the love of God and have peace in him. It's not to say that we aren't impacted by the the loss of a loved one. Of course, we mourn. But the point is that all these things are circumstances of life, and they don't determine how our inner man responds, right? An athlete trains his body to respond to the outward world around him in in, in ways uh, that, that are just almost reflexive. He doesn't even have to think about it. If a football is thrown to a wild ride receiver, he, he barely has to think to be able to catch it. In the same way, Christians can train their inner man to respond to the circumstances of the world around them uh, based on the truths of Scripture. And, and it's, it's the power of God working in us, in our inner man, that will cause us to respond to the circumstances of life in faith. So what about your daily life? How do you respond, for instance, to children who are whiny and disobedient, right? That sounds so much less traumatic than, uh, you know, being in, living in China or something and, and having your whole family taken away from you and put in prison for the gospel. But it's our daily life, right? How do you respond to that situation? How do you respond when you lose your job or when a loved one dies, if you begin to understand these truths, uh, and you begin to have the love of God foremost in your mind on a day-to-day basis, then everything in your life is seen through that lens. Now, I asked the question at the beginning: Is God pleased with you? And I had in mind, in particular, uh, those here in this congregation who struggle to have a tender conscience and yet remain firm in the Lord and rooted in faith in love and and <clears throat> and so is god pleased with you and this question must be answered before any of the practical commands of ephesians can even be obeyed all right we can't skip over answering the, this question and the answer is that in christ god is pleased with you not because you're righteous because you're not you're not righteous but because of what Jesus Christ has done. God is pleased to fill up those poor sinners who come to Him acknowledging their sin, their evil, their emptiness and need, and to fill them up with all the fullness of God. God is pleased to give Himself to them and allow them to feast on Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is... Hard to imagine, Father, these things that are so glorious, that you would bend so low to us, and that you would fill us with all the fullness of God. Father, if, if, if someone had told us this, it, we wouldn't believe it, but it says it here in your word, Father. And so in amazement and in awe, we, we believe it and trust it, Father. Give us faith, Father. Help us, we pray, to be rooted and grounded in love. We ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.